you've been here with us, we are in week nine of a 14-week series that we've been doing on the Sermon on the Mount out of the Gospel of Matthew. If you guys aren't familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus' first teaching, literally on the side of a mountain, so it's a clever name. Uh, that's how we get it. Uh, Jesus' first public teaching, uh, it's right at the very beginning of his ministry, his career uh, as a rabbi. And it's a teaching that he gave to his close followers and disciples that he'd been recruiting. But there's also a large group of people that have gathered to kind of see who this guy is and what he's all about. Um, Jesus had been building a reputation throughout the land. And so there was a lot of people that were very curious about who he was and what he was teaching. His teachings in this sermon were a big departure from the traditional teachings of Jewish law, the Torah, and the Old Testament. Jesus was laying out a new way of doing and living life, being in relationship with God. Jesus embodied this new way of living in God's kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount, basically, it does two things for us. It clarifies our need for salvation, and it shows us how we can receive that salvation through the life and example of Christ. Last week, we looked at verses 19 through 34 out of chapter 6. And this is Jesus talking about two big warnings that he's giving his followers. He talked about storing up treasures here on earth, things like money and wealth, and about worrying. And as tempting as it is to take those verses and think that this is God's manifesto on like you know, wealth management and investment and how to avoid mental health issues, it's not. Jesus is talking about here, he's warning his followers about distractions in life that pull our attention away from God. So this week, we are continuing with a very similar message. Uh, actually, the verses that precede what we talked about last week. We're going to be in verses 1 through 18 in chapter 6. Jesus is giving a couple more warnings here. He's talking about three separate things in this chunk of Scripture. And although those three things are different, there's a very strong theme that ties all of them together. And that theme is hypocrisy. Maybe you're not even sure what hypocrisy means or how applicable it is to us in our context, in our world and life. Uh, but I think it's a warning that we all need to be heeding and understanding in our context, whatever that is. So I want to define what hypocrisy is. It's the practice of claiming to have, uh, to have moral standards or beliefs to which uh, one's own behavior does not conform to or live up to or match. So you say one thing, you do another. Hypocrisy can take a lot of different forms can look like pride or selfishness, self-service, jealousy, judgmentalism. And in some cases, in worst cases, it can even look like abuses. For Jesus, hypocrisy was anything that stood in stark contrast to a God-honoring life and lifestyle. I've been in ministry for a long time, and I first started uh, in ministry at a church out in Matamidai. And I started as an intern in their high school youth ministry, and then ended up coming on staff there. I was there for a couple of years. And it was an awesome experience that I had working there. I was wrapping up college, and it was like my first big experience out of the church that I grew up in, being on staff and doing youth ministry. It was great. We had 200-plus students every week. Uh, we did a lot of different outreach events and trips and things like that. And one of the like best parts of that ministry was every summer, every August, we would do a big retreat down and do a beach camp in Panama City Beach, Florida, right on the Gulf Coast. Now, imagine taking three coach buses full of high school students down to Florida for a week. Maybe I just described your nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> a 
for me, it was awesome. It was so much fun. It was like such a blast. And being on staff and helping plan that trip and then just be like someone right in the midst of it, you know, doing speaking, you know, all these different things, it was a blast. As a staffer, one of my big responsibilities was to plan all of the big activities that we would do during free time out on the beach. And so I just like, again, being young in ministry and leadership, I was like, this is my time to shine. And so um, I was planning these different things that we're going to do. And really, as I was planning, the thing that came to the forefront, that just the cream that rose to the top was a giant slip and slide on the beach out into the Gulf of Mexico. And this really became a point of pride for me because it was big, uh, it was fun, and all of the glory pointed right at me because this was my thing, it was my baby. I conceived it, I birthed it, I was really excited about it. So the day came to build the giant slip and slide for (laughs) beach camp. We had bought like these 200-foot rolls of construction poly plastic. We took rakes and like smoothed out the beach. We found a spot that had a pretty generous incline. It was a nice little hill, and it was amazing. We set up the plastic. We staked it down. You know, if you have a slip and slide at your house for your kids, you know that like you have to have a hose to like keep it wet at the top. We didn't have that, so I had like students with buckets, like a bucket brigade, bringing water up to the top of the slip and slide. It was awesome. Now, someone at one point had told me, like, oh, you need to get like some dish soap or something to make it slippery. And I was like, I don't want to put soap into the Gulf. That's going to pollute, toxic. Like, looking back now, that probably would help with all the oil spills and things like that. But at the time, I was like, I don't want to do that. So I went to Sam's Club and I bought. 10 five-gallon jugs of canola oil. I thought, oil is slippery. This is perfect. So the time came to do the slip and slide. Uh, We poured oil all over it, and it was like we needed someone to go down and test it. And it wasn't even a question for me. I was like, no, it's me. I'm going. This is my thing. And, of course, I hammed it up. I'm, like, pumping the crowd up. I'm getting people excited. At one point, I I went over, took a jug of oil, started pouring it over me. This was Jesus' anointing of my life and leadership and ministry. I'm covered in oil. Uh, I back up. I take like a 20-yard head start. I run. I jump. I'm flying through the air. Have you guys ever seen Disney's Pocahontas? You know when she jumps like cliff dives, the perfect dive? That's what it felt like I had done. (laughs) Flying through the air, covered in oil, in the hot Florida August sun, And in that moment, I began to realize what I had actually done to myself. I realized that I was about to land not on the soft grass in my front yard, but on hard, compacted sand. So when I hit, I landed with an oof, knocked the wind out of me. I also landed in a big puddle of oil that splashed in my eyes. So I knocked the wind out of me, I can't breathe. I now can't see. I am gaining momentum down this slip and slide. And I'm questioning everything that I had just done. (laughs) And not only that, I also realized that I had planned. I had not timed my my slide well. I thought that, like, you know, you get to the end, and I would just meet the Gulf of Mexico gracefully. When in actuality, I reached the end right as the wave went out. (laughs) So I hit the sand collapsed into a ball and just tumbled. So I can't breathe. I can't see. I'm now getting scratched up by like shells and debris in the sand. I'm in pain. 
I'm questioning my life and my faith. And that's right when a wave hit me. <laughs> so I get knocked over. I'm in the water, and I'm trying to, like, get out and breathe. And it was right in that moment that God chose to humble me, to just strip away any pride that I had in this project, in my, like, confidence in my abilities as a youth pastor, because that's right when a jellyfish stung my leg. So I come out of the water, grabbing my eyes, everyone's cheering, and I'm like, just walking away in shame. It was horrible. It could not have gone worse. I think God wanted to nip my pride in the bud at that moment, honestly, because he knew that that probably was going to be an issue for me in my life, not just in ministry, but in all things. I am a confident, prideful person, and it's been an issue for me. And I think there are probably some of you, as funny as that story is, you're probably sitting there thinking like, oh yeah, I know what that's like. That's me. Hypocrisy takes a lot of different forms. As Christians, we have to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? Is it to gain approval of God or of other people? Jesus taught his disciples to be very careful not to practice their righteousness for the praise of man, but instead for the glory of God as they gave, as they prayed, and as they fasted. Jesus' warnings here in the Sermon on the Mount are a help for us as we practice our relationship with God to ensure we glorify him and not ourselves. We see here in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is telling all of us that righteous living flows from the heart, a heart that's humble before God and seeks only his kingdom. For some of us, humility, I think, comes naturally. For others of you, uh, I think it comes out of just your character and your personality. You're naturally humble. Some of us, humility comes from being humbled, like my story. And for the rest of us, we maybe have never thought about humility um, in this way. It's a foreign concept. We've never connected it to our faith as an important thing. And what I mean is that we've never entertained the idea that being humble is a vital part of our religion. As risen children of God, humility comes from the notion that we are on our own, pretty pitiful creatures. <laughs> Without God, we're full of sin and desires that are not in line with God's desires. When we think about that, then it's easy to say, yeah, we're not great. <laughs> we kind of stink sometimes. We have to acknowledge, again, as Christ followers, that the only way we're going to make it is with God's grace and with forgiveness. So if that's the case, and spoiler, it is, and the only way we can make it in this life is with Jesus, then we have to acknowledge that we need to live different kinds of lives. We live these different lives not because that gets us to heaven, but because that changed life flows out of a truly changed heart. So what does that look like? We live those changed lives through things that are God-honoring, things like giving, praying, fasting, which is what we're talking about here in this passage. If I go back to the story that I shared about the slip and slide, I can say that that was a low point for me with my pride. My motive was not to honor God. It was to feel really great about youth ministry and being a leader and, I don't know, popular or something. I don't know. The work I was doing, the leadership I was providing was God-honoring, but my heart was a little off course. God wants the heart. 
He wants your heart. So let's dive in and look at these three chunks of Scripture today. We're going to start in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, pull those out. If you want to follow on the screens, we're going to have the Scripture up there. I am reading out of the NIV translation. First one says this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus said here in verse 2, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. I have to tell you, there have been a significant number of archaeological excavations in and around Jerusalem for centuries now. And I can tell you, because I looked, they have yet to find any small horns or trumpets that were used to signal giving or tithing. It's pretty safe to say here that Jesus is not being literal. If you give on the app, you don't have to go beep. No one in Jesus' day was going around blowing a horn when they gave. Jesus wasn't talking about a noise ordinance issue here. He was using hyperbole to get at the condition of the heart. Giving tithes and offerings was an important part of religious life in ancient Israel. In the Old Covenant, between God and his people, offerings were a vital practice that got people into right standing with God. Today, anyone who has a church they call home are familiar with this, too. Our offerings that we receive are not tied to our sins like ancient Jews. Our offerings are used to fund the functions of the church, both at home and abroad. Here at Pursuit, we don't pass an offering plate, but we do talk about giving as an act of worship. It's an important part of serving in God's kingdom. This was true in Jesus' day, but giving was also a very public practice. People were always present when gifts were offered. We have you go to the app or text or mail a check-in. It's all very private. Unfortunately, back then and in some churches now, the nature of giving in public can be manipulated by the giver to garner appreciation or honor from other people. It can also be mutated into a dysfunctional practice that is bred out of shame or even pressure. I'm not going to tell you where this church is or give names or tell you who the pastor was, but I worked at a church once. Uh, I remember this vividly, being in a staff meeting where the senior pastor, we had three services that we did every weekend, and the senior pastor told me that him and his wife would take their weekly tithe and divide it by three, write three separate checks, and then give a check into the offering plate when it was passed every service because they wanted to make sure, not that it was honoring God, but that the people in the church, the attendees, could see them putting something in. And we were highly encouraged to do the exact same thing. This is precisely what Jesus is talking about here. It's a perfect example. He's warning each of us today. If we give, we need to be doing it to honor God and not ourselves or someone else. So why should a Christian give? There is precedent in the Bible to give and to tithe. Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Jesus himself talks a lot about money, actually, and he talks about giving a fair amount throughout his ministry. 
Christians, we're called to give our resources directly to the work of the kingdom. We can have another conversation about what tithing is and what percentage we should give, but this is not that sermon. In the New Testament, it's clear that a faithful, Christ-honoring life is characterized in one way by generous, joyful giving. Here's a quote from Randy Alcorn. He says, Our use of money and possessions is a decisive statement of our eternal values. What we do with our money loudly affirms which kingdom we belong to. Whenever we give of our resources to further God's kingdom, we cast a ballot for Christ and against Satan, for heaven and against hell. So what should a Christian's posture be toward giving? Christians are characterized as generous givers. Think about this from a gospel perspective. We have already received the best gift that was ever given in God's grace. We've also been called to share that gift with as many people as we can by telling them about Jesus. So by nature, we are to be people who, in Christ, our identity, we are generous. We are supposed to be generous. Again, the idea here for Jesus is not about the amount. Rather, it is about our motivation behind what and when we give All right, let's look at the second section, talking about prayer. This is verses 5 through 15. It says this, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We go on in verse 9. Jesus gives us an example of how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, and we'll cover that here in a few minutes. But I just want to sit right here and talk about this for a moment. In the same way that giving is an important part of our faith, and yet the act of giving can be a potential source for pride or hypocrisy, the same is true when we pray. If I were to ask you all to rate, make a list of the importance of prayer in your life, of being a Christian, I think you guys would rate it at or near the top of all of your spiritual practices, right? Prayer is one of the primary acts of our faith. It's how we communicate with our Heavenly Father. It's how we listen to Him. By nature, it is reflective, and it's a posture where we focus our being and our consciousness towards God. We really focus in. It's how we respond to the working of the Spirit in our lives. And for a Christian, prayer is meant to be like breathing. I also think it's important to note here that all three of these spiritual disciplines that Jesus is talking about here in this passage are to be done towards God. Of the three, giving, praying, and fasting, prayer is the act that is the most Godward in its practice. Of the three, prayer creates a direct line between you and God. So if you just look at the word count here, it makes sense that Jesus gives it more attention than giving and fasting. The point is that prayer is primarily about God and not about us. 
What kind of praying does Jesus tell us to avoid? He warned his audience and us to not pray like hypocrites. Jesus gives the example of praying in a public setting and in a way that draws attention to the person praying. Uh Uh-oh. Every pastor, when they read this passage, cringes just a little bit because we're the ones up front praying and talking and it's our words and it just makes you think like, okay, better not be doing this for the wrong reasons. The point here is that prayer is by design meant to be God-honoring. If someone is praying in a way that is meant to honor themselves or someone else, then it's defeating the purpose and it's design. And it's shifting the act into self-service. Jesus condemned any form of giving, praying, or fasting that repurposed the act to bring glory to another person or anyone other than God for that matter. If we were to skip ahead in Matthew to chapter 22 and look at verse 37, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Above all else, we are meant to love God and honor him. When we pray to be seen, air quotes, by others, we are loving ourselves above God. We are seeking others' approval above God. And that's a problem. The good news is that Jesus doesn't just give us a warning here and then quickly move on. He gives us a way to pray, a template in the Lord's Prayer. So I've got two little micro-warnings I want to share about the Lord's Prayer, even though we haven't read it yet. (laughs) The first is that the Lord's Prayer is not magical. Uh, We don't get anything out of it by just blindly repeating it. It's not a chant. The second warning is that we shouldn't just disregard it altogether. It's an important example that Jesus intentionally shares with us. But it's also important to keep proper perspective here. It's a guide for us in our practice of prayer, but it's not the ultimate law or like... It's not the only way to do it, is what I'm trying to say. If anything, it enhances our posture towards God. It helps us organize our thoughts and our words. So if we were to take a close look at the Lord's Prayer just quickly, we begin to see how Jesus organized and prioritized its elements. So let's look at the order. First, we acknowledge God as our Father and how powerful his name is. Second, Jesus tells us to pray for God's will to be done and for his desires to be carried out. These two aspects acknowledge God and his sovereignty. The desire is for God's plan, God's timing, God's execution, and not ours. And finally, we pray for our needs and our actions. It's only after we acknowledge God first that we then pray for ourselves. And I don't want to gloss over this point too quickly. Jesus taught us to ask for our personal needs to be met. We talked about this last week. And we also just noticed how simple these words are, how simple it is to ask for the basics in life, things like food and forgiveness of our sins, helping us to forgive others when they sin against us. We don't pray to impress others. We don't pray to feel good about ourselves. We pray because we are pursuing God. It's a really good name for a church, by the way. So pray simply. Pray like a child. Don't worry about it being fancy or long. Just think about it and be honest. God wants to hear from you. The last section, verses 16 through 18. We're talking about fasting. So it says, when you fast, do not look somber. When I was running through this, I said sober, and I was like, that's not right. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do. 
for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. It's okay to laugh. So that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Like these first two warnings that Jesus gives in this passage, the warning on how to fast properly is that it's to be done in a way that honors God. I think I can also say that in our modern context, part of our problem here is that we're just not doing this enough in most cases. I feel like when I hear someone talking about fasting, it's usually a lot. I hear a lot about intermittent fasting or also known as skipping breakfast. (laughs) But it is not practiced as a way to connect and focus on God. In Jesus' day, fasting was a spiritual practice that was much more common and accepted in Jewish culture and in the church. It was a means to extremely focus the mind and the body and the spirit holistically. By withholding food, a God follower would point their focus towards God intentionally. In the Bible, fasting was often done in conjunction with things like mourning, seeking redemption, renewing of faith or trust, seeking a sense of purpose or direction. Maybe there was a struggle with a major event or a major choice. All of those things in the biblical context were big, and fasting was a tool that was used by the individuals or by groups in times of trouble, anxiety, fear, or desperation. Fasting can be done in a similar way for us today. Our approach should be that of honoring God through our actions, honoring God through our intentional focus. If fasting is about anything else other than that, then it is a practice that is not done for God, but despite of God. There is a place for fasting in our lives today in our modern context. I just think that if you are to do it, don't go around talking about how great it is and how cool you are. (laughs) I digress. So let me say it this way, talking about all three of these warnings that Jesus is giving. When someone discovers Jesus for the first time, when they learn of their Savior who loves them and has sacrificed his life for them, when that person accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God does something. He graciously justifies that person, declaring them not guilty of their sins, granting them everlasting life in heaven. That person is not only guaranteed of their salvation, but they are drawn into a lasting relationship with God, their Father. God also mercifully adopts that person. The gospel saves people from sin and separation from God. It brings them into the family. The gospel also transforms them into God-centered, God-loving worshipers. When you become a Christian, you are changed from the inside out. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us what that kind of change looks like, how we live in ways to achieve that, and he warns us of the things in life that can harm that change. Christians are to be then gracious. We are to be merciful towards others. We're to be devoted to God, humble in word and deed, and full of the abounding love of our Savior Jesus. 
But here's the danger of living this life that Jesus is addressing here in chapter 6. Don't try to impress others with your relationship with God. It's always tempting to do the right thing for the wrong reason. We can do the right thing, serve and worship God, for exactly the wrong reason, to improve our status or look cool going down a slip and slide. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by giving assurances to his followers and to us that we're blessed because of a sure future and hope no matter the present circumstances in our life. Jesus then emphasizes what we all ought and ought not do to honor God. But here's another problem. We can do all the religious things that Jesus is teaching us about and completely miss the point. We can go through all the motions, attending church, praying, giving, serving, fasting, and we can completely miss it. It's not that these things are wrong. It's that they are a means to an end. And the means is God. Whenever we pursue these things but don't pursue God, we're putting our souls in danger. I've said this a couple times as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, but it's about the heart. It's always been about the heart. God wants your heart. He wants your devotion. He wants you to love and honor him. So to end our time this morning, I thought we could do something a little bit different today. I want us to end our time by going through the Lord's Prayer corporately. So we're going to put it back on the screens. And regardless of whether you're here in the event center, if you're watching at home, I want to just invite you guys into this. And you can take whatever posture is best suited for you. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can close your eyes, you can say these words and recite the prayer, or you can just listen if that is how you connect with God. But we have an opportunity to connect with God, to communicate with Him, and to listen to Him right now, and to do it in a way that honors God and not ourselves. So I just thought it would be a good way to end our time by practicing this prayer. So let's do it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.